I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower, a weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. You and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello. Welcome to Maximum Firepower. My guest today is Allison Hagendorf, queen of rock uh, and expert on all things rock. But uh, an area of focus for her has been uh, 90s music. And first of all, hi, Allison. How are you? Lovely to see you. <laughs> hi. <laughs> I, I love that introduction. Thank you. I'm honored yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm beaming ear to ear just hearing yeah. this. Thank you. Yeah. Well, before I go on with the explanation, I want to say welcome to you and hello and you're awesome and I love Aww. you and the world of rock Aww. loves you. Well, so what we're going to do is the whole idea with these Maximum Firepower podcasts from the beginning was kind of trying to recreate my friends and I would often go to the Rainbow Bar and Grill where yes. we would commandeer a table for, you know, seven hours or so and discuss and debate all matters of rock and roll with structured conversation normally. So we're trying to bring a little bit of that into this. So what we're going to do today is a top 10 list of top 10 90s moments of which you and I have witnessed and been a part of some of those. In no particular order, Allison, give me your, one of your top 10 90s moments. First of all, I want to say what an honor it is to talk about these great moments with one of the greats himself. So I just wanted to put that out there because you are obviously all things 90s and I can't <laughs> wait to talk more about that. But I think for me, I have to start off by talking about Smells Like Teen Spirit. And you could literally sure. talk about the Nevermind album. You could talk about the song. You could talk about the video. The song itself, a lot of people believe this was the event that brought the alternative music into the mainstream. It catapulted it. This was the song heard around the world. This was the song of a generation. And then you bring it to the video. Yes. The video changed the landscape forever. Amy Finnerty at uh, MTV Programming said it literally changed MTV forever. It changed the yeah. aesthetic of it. It changed the, the demographic. But the song itself was just so iconic because it fused so many genres, but it was a pop song. It was yes. an undeniable, yes. incredible pop song. And what's also cool to know is that it's, I believe it's the only song in Nevermind that all three band members are credited with being writers, which is so interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'll, I'll share a little bit of my. So I remember yeah. I was on Geffen. I was uh, an artist on Geffen uh, on my band Lockup. And I remember when there were there were these sort of rumblings about Seattle and whatnot. And this um, an assistant who worked there, she was like. You know, I'm here all day long. I see Axl Rose. I see this one. I see Don Hanley. I see this one, that one. But the one artist who really I just can't, I tremble in front of is this new guy named Kurt Cobain. Uh. I don't know what it is about. And I didn't, I never heard that name before. I never heard that name before. I was just like, oh, wow. So that sort of stuck in my mind. And the first time I ever heard the song, Rage Against the Machine had not yet played their first show. And it was in 91. We were rehearsing in this industrial park in the Valley. Tim and Zach were coming up from Orange County. They had like Zach's white truck. Brad and I were in there jamming and they said, come out here. And they played us this song, pranking in the parking lot. And we listened to it three times in a row, just like banging our yes. heads in the parking lot to this incredible, like you said, amalgamation of musics that previously had been cousins, but now were married at the hip. And with his pop song, it was it was a revelatory moment and a great yes. start and a great start to our to our list of top 10. My first top 10 of the moments of the 90s is what I believe was the fertilizer 
uh, from which all things sprang, all the good of the 90s sprang. And that was the awfulness of hair metal. And what, <laughs> and, and, and what it had become. Now, I've spent a lot of American money on a lot of spandex for myself and bands wearing spandex. <laughs> I've seen know. the photos. I've yeah, seen the photos. Yeah, yeah, like, it's uh, impressive. So I, so I know everybody on like, you know, the hair metal channel goes crazy when you say something like, but it becomes so derivative and every band looked exactly the same and every ad and every music paper was for a cheekbone big hair <laughs> you know if you look 70 percent like nikki six you're in a band didn't matter if you could play a note right <laughs> um and you know i in some of the bands like the 15th generation version of poison were the ones yeah. who were you know were choking mtv clearly that was like a bubble that was ready to burst and something was coming. But there was a moment, a pivotal moment that is talked about in the lore at Columbia Records, where the guys in Warrant were going in to, you know, pick up some big check or something and talk about the success of Cherry Pie 2, the, you know, <laughs> the blue, sequel. Bl blueberry <laughs> pie or whatever their next Magnus <laughs> Opus what, the, was, was going to be. There had always been like this big picture of like warrants on the president's wall and it had come down and there was a poster of a band called Alice, Alice in Ch and Chains. Alice in Chains. And <laughs> yes. they and they like saw literally saw the writing on the wall at that moment. And so that is my literally. first moment is the awfulness that hair metal had become. What's your number two? I love that. Well, I think there's a specific date that we should mention and not to talk about Nirvana again, but September no. 24th, 1991 was one of the most iconic release dates in music history, not even just the 90s, because we did have Nirvana's Nevermind, but we also had Blood Sugar, Sex Magic, Red Hot Chili Peppers. We also had Low End Theory by Tribe Called Quest. Oh, my. And also, Bad Motor Finger was supposed to come out that day, but it, it did come out, I think, two weeks later. Yeah, there's, a, wow. there's so many other albums that day. The Pixies had an album out that day, Primal Scream, The Cult. It was just one of those magical, iconic dates yeah, yeah. that, li like you said, really just was an indication of the shift that was about to come. Mm -hmm. Again, more alternative music becoming mainstream and is what I think makes the 90s so incredible. Wow, that's it. I didn't I didn't know that. That's an excellent fact right there. The blood sugar sex magic and smells like teen spirit and then and bad motor finger was supposed to come out on that yes. day. I mean, that's a that's a heavy duty day. And what was the date? Uh, it's September 24th, 1991. Wow. So it wasn't even like sort of Christmas releases or something no. like that. No, it was just sort of like a day when records came out that happened to create a bunch and of I classics. Think Pearl, I think Pearl Jam 10 came out like the month before. Like it was wow. just an iconic period yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah, It was yeah. a renaissance. It really was yeah, a renaissance yeah, yeah. of music. Yeah, which people didn't know yet, but it was like everything was like kind of in the shoot. Like it was yes. all in the shoot ready to go. My second one is... Uh, Related in some ways to that, and it, for me, it was uh, I was at, it was Lollapalooza in nineteen ninety one, and I was at the show, and I don't think you can underestimate how important that tour was. First of all, it was something that did not exist in the United States. There were you know there had been like Cal Jam or Texas Jam or the US Festival or something like that, but Perry Farrell had you know witnessed the European festival scene and then had the genius moment where like what if we took that festival idea and traveled it around the country but not with hit making bands with my favorite bands and there were no platinum acts playing these uh you know these sheds which are like 18 to 40,000 seat venues the james record wouldn't go on to become platinum but everybody else was like he curated an amazing afternoon and evening of bands that he liked and that brought a huge number of people to begin to identify an emerging genre 
of yeah. alternative music and that Lollapalooza Nation. There were a couple of standouts on that day, two bands that I don't believe get the credit they deserve for bringing in this wave of excellent new music in the 90s. One of them is Jane's Addiction, who the thing that they had that was in Jane's Addiction that we see in many of our favorite bands from, from the 90s, there was an unapologetic embracing of the great things about heavy metal music, but an eschewing of all of the bullshit. And also like having this kind of vision to, to have one foot in big metal riffs and one foot in this kind of underground artistry and not be afraid to play like beautiful acoustic like led zeppelin three side two songs at the same time you know nirvana gets all the credit for like the commercial breakthrough but jane's w was yes. built the floorboards there and secondly also on that bill was living color and you yes. can't i don't think you can underestimate one of the the hallmarks of bands in the 90s was you could kind of look like anything and have a hit record prior to that you couldn't you had to, to make a rock record you had to be a white dude you know, and not since Hendrix had there been people of color on rock radio in a way that was that mattered until Cult of Personality. And so those two bands, Jane's and Living Color on that same bill, along with Nine Inch Nails. Now, I had never heard the, <laughs> I never heard the words Nine Inch Nails. You know, but I was there. I was there when Gates opened at Irvine Meadows down there. I was going to see everything they had to show me. I think Nine Inch Nails was on second. I by constitutionally was opposed to any band that had keyboards in it. You know, like, 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 like if you got keyboards in your band, I am not interested in your band. It couldn't possibly be a good band, and it certainly couldn't rock me. And then right. how, how comes in the daylight? Here comes Nine Inch Nails, and I remember just being like terrified. And the next day, went out and bought a cassette of a band that had keyboards in it, and uh, and the rest is history. So that's Lollapalooza '91. All right. So what's your next? Uh, Wait, but your... back to Lala, because Rage oh, yeah, yeah, actually yeah. had a really big moment we should talk about, because I believe you guys played like a side stage in 92. That was in, in 92. That's correct. And then that's correct. and then you were the first band to go from playing the side stage to the main stage the following that's year. 93, in 93 and 93 was a big year. Yeah. Because... 90, yes. 93. Yeah, I mean, Lollapalooza set the template. The 93 tour, though, and this is where in the, over the span of 24 months, how much the world had changed. I think that the 93 Lollapalooza tour sold out across the country before they announced the lineup. It had now become the brand of Lollapalooza. And now everyone knew we're going to get the goods at this yes. thing, you know. But yeah, so Rage opened the show in 1993 with half empty sheds, people sitting down with their hot dogs and beers and going, oh, Lord, have mercy. What are, <laughs> what are they doing to us? <laughs> That's amazing. But I, but I have to thank Perry. Like Perry was hugely instrumental. Like he really championed our band from the from from day one and was a huge part of the Perry's success. a visionary. He has yeah. always been a yeah. one of one. He's one Perry Farrell. People some people consider him the godfather of alternative rock. Sure. You know, he because he really did usher it in, like you said, starting in the eighties. And he's just one of a kind. And he's incredible. Yeah, one of a kind. And he's ageless. And he's it ageless. A, yeah. But I would say without Lollapalooza, I don't know that it would have been what it was. Because it really... And first of all, it's a, it, was a, it was a concert tour called Lollapalooza. Now we take that for granted. But that's a crazy-ass right. name. Crazy. For, to try to sell 25,000 tickets to something called Lollapalooza right. with bands where there's no Platinum Max. All right, what's your next one so on the list? Well, actually, I think that's a good segue because Woodstock 94 was also an iconic cultural music gathering of the decade and was probably the last good Woodstock branded event, sadly. So, yeah, I mean, there were so many iconic performances. Like for me, the standout, I, I love Blind Melon to this day. I'm still one of the biggest Blind Melon fans. I feel like they're one of the most underrated bands. But Shannon came out wearing his, his girlfriend's dress. 
Um, and it just was a wonderful. I think I think the, the slogan was like two more days of peace, and yes. love and music or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and Woodstock 94 was incredible. It was an incredible lineup and and great, great memories. So that was an iconic moment. From yeah, yeah. I think there was a great Chili Peppers performance that year yes. and uh, Cypress Hill performance that yes. year. The Cranberries. Uh, yeah, yeah. The Nine Inch Nails coming out like in like flour or something like that. <laughs> like, like they'd all, there had been a baking accident or something before the show. <laughs> oh, right, right, yes. <laughs> they were all like, yes. covered in dust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were dusty marauders coming out and... <laughs> All my heroes are late with their payments. I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello. My guest today is rock queen Allison Hagendorf, and we're discussing the top 10 moments of the 90s. All right, so my, my next one is uh, important mo moments of the 90s is the passing of Andrew Wood and the making of the uh. temp Temple of the Dog record. Andrew Wood was a singer of a band called Mother Love Bone, which featured Jeff Amen and Stone Gossard, who would later make Pearl Jam. Andrew Wood, he was a, an absolute genius. The record that they made was fantastic. But it's possible that the world of 90s music would have been very different had he not OD'd at 22. He was Chris Cornell's roommate at the time that he, yeah. that he, that he passed away. And the thing about Mother Love Bones, they were a great, great band, but they had one foot much more firmly planted in the world of Sunset Strip spandex rock. And it's possible that if their MCA release had gotten the push that it was expected to get, it might have taken up the evolutionary space in the room that was later filled by like Pearl Jams and Nirvana's. And I've often thought about that. But what it did do with his passing was it inspired Chris Cornell, who at the time was a known in some circles, you know, underground circles in, in Seattle, to write this Temple of the Dog record about his fallen comrade and roommate. And he asked a fellow by the name of Eddie Vedder to sing on a song on that record. And so the first time the world saw Eddie Vedder was on the Temple of the Dog song, Hunger Strike. And that was a huge moment in jettisoning both bands, you know, and and also also forging what became in the minds of the world, like a Seattle community, you know, even though yes. Eddie wasn't from there. But like it sort of became like there's this band that went away and now there's this band Temple of the Dog and there's this band Soundgarden, there's this band Pearl Jam. And it felt like this kind of group of like minded arts, like spirited artists who were creating a kind of music that was very, very fresh. And a lot of it had to do with the lack of Mother Love Bone and what grew from that. Well, you just inspired me to talk about something I actually wasn't going to talk about, but this brings me to the singles soundtrack. Huge. Another massive Huge. event that put a, a, a subculture in the mainstream culture. I think Huge. I actually think that's how I even know who Mother Love Bone is was from that soundtrack. Sure, sure. You know, it was the greatest, greatest bands and artists of that era all together in one of the most incredible soundtracks known yes. to man. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would actually say that's my favorite soundtrack of all time. It really was like, was as these bands were ascendant, it had a, a greatest hits of new songs, you know, from them, yes. you know, in a way that was really, I think Pearl Jam's state of love, and, love trust and trust is, is, the, is on that. And Seasons is on that. And, yeah, uh, Seasons. Yeah, birth, birth Ritual, I uh, think, you know, yeah. And also Pumpkins are on it and introduces yeah, us to the Pumpkins. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. As part of this sort of new community of uh, of bands. That's a, that is a great addition to our list. My next moment, and again, it's more of a, it's a broader moment uh, that's helped define the things that happened in the 90s. And I believe it's one of the reasons why the 
bands of the 90s that were great do not get the credit that I believe they deserve as a movement. Punk rock guilt. So you had all of these bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Tool and Rage Against the Machine and Nine Inch Nails, all of whom had a love of underground music and punk rock music, but they found themselves having the commercial success of groups like Poison. And it caused this tremendous amount of tension in all of the first waves of those bands. You know, you saw Nine Inch Nails making records every three to four years, Tool making records every five years, Rage Against the Machine making records every four years, Kurt Cobain eventually killing himself, you know, like the, the, the angst that Eddie Vedder had in the press about doing videos, like these bands were not willing to play the same game that was traditional in creating a career. So what they did was they created an audience that they didn't serve. And those right. record companies were not going to sit around. I remember hearing somebody saying out loud to my face, like, if only you guys would have like a love song, we would blow this thing, you know, through the through the roof. <laughs> and so in, the, in those in those cigar smoke filled back rooms, they went, you know, get me a Jane's Addiction that's not on drugs. You know, get me a, you know, right. get me a Pearl Jam that'll make videos. Get me a, a Rage Against the Machine that'll sing about the nookie, you know? Yes. And so yes. and so there was this second and third and fourth wave of bands that perhaps did not have their they were not tethered to the same kind of artistic rock that the first wave was. And so a lot of the latter half of the decade became, in a way, almost business as usual. Bands were once again doing their interviews from MTV right. at the Playboy Mansion. Punk rock guilt. That's my moment of the 90s. It became more derivative of where it began and what yeah. it was founded on because like Kurt Cobain, were assigned poster child of Generation X. That's right. That was That's never right. his intention. Never his intention. Never his intention. Yeah. <laughs> What's your next one? Another major thing of the 90s was the launch of MTV Unplugged. Some of the greatest albums, again, sure. of course. I know I, I know. I keep talking about Nirvana, but that is one of the best MTV it Unplugged. It, it Alice in Chains, is. one of the best MTV Unplugged. Absolutely. I, I think that Eric Clapton's MTV Unplugged is one of the best-selling live albums of all yes. time. Yeah, yeah. So, but that was special. I remember just watching those. And it wasn't just the audio recording, just watching it on MTV yes. yeah. was historic. And also it sort of revealed that these were really great musicians and songwriters and artists, you know, when you when you take away the Marshall Stacks, there was still like, remember the Pearl Jam one? Like they rocked super hard at theirs. Yes. You know, like yes. they rocked super hard at theirs. And, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I think the LL Cool J one was really spectacular too. But you was. You're, <laughs> But you're right. Like that was a it was a defining part of the 90s where you got to see these bands like sing their songs around a campfire to you and the songs shone brightly. And also pay homage to their influences in the Nirvana yeah. one in particular yeah. him covering Bowie, you yeah. know, the, the cover choices. Mm -hmm. I remember like that's how I learned about a lot of these bands because I'm like, oh, Kurt's co covering this band. Yeah. I have to go do a deep dive at Tower Records now and learn all about them. The, the man who sold the world. That's one of my, I play I'm that on, on my show that I. It's you know, whenever there's an acoustic show or whatnot, it's like one of my favorite recordings. That's a great one. Yeah. That's a great one. My final of the five here is going to be the capstone to the 90s, which would be Woodstock 99. Where <laughs> all the good that was was wrong. Mm. And for those of you who may not sort of recall what happened at this, you know, one, they had had a Woodstock five years before. And now they were having another one uh, on the, the 40th anniversary. Anniversary, yeah. Yeah, 40th anniversary. And, you know, there were rapes in the crowd the cost seven dollars for a bottle of water at the end the band set the place on fire 
And it was really sort of about something else. I remember Rage Against the Machine played that one. And as the whole thing was burning to the ground, you know, on the Sunday night, you know, everybody was texting me on my BlackBerry. I think BlackBerry. (laughs) (laughs) Your flip phone. It was your flip phone. Maybe maybe they were around that, but I was getting a lot of messages on whatever device I had. Like, are you all right? I'm like, dude, like I was there. Our set was an hour and 10 minutes and I was there an hour and 30 minutes. Like I was back. I was back in New York City. I was at a hotel in New York City. Just like, I'm out. It it felt like even the scene at the at the hotel was one was that felt like it had nothing to do it could not have been more of an antithesis antithesis of, of, exactly. of that, of that yeah. 1991 Lollapalooza. And that was the and that was the end. It of was that. upsetting. <laughs> it was yeah. it was very upsetting because that was my generation. And I was yeah. so upset because yeah. plus the 94 one was so wonderful. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And it was very upsetting. And it was mostly it was rock heavy and it was yeah. not a good it was not a good look. And it was upsetting. It was. It, it, it was not a shining moment for the genre or culture. It was, culture. It was not a shining moment for the genre yeah. or the culture. All right. So what's your, your last I'm, one on the list? I, I'm going to have to end with Rage Against the Machine. And I'm not just saying that because you're here. Early critics of Generation X said that Generation X was the generation of apathy. And, and it said that a lot of the kids, you know, had no focus. They were disillusioned, didn't care. And then you have Rage Against the Machine come. <laughs> And I, I could, I think you could say it's probably the antithesis of apathy. Yes. Um, you guys were the most controversial, impassioned, polarizing, um, emphatic band, and I think that really helped to further define who Generation X really was. Yeah, it was. It was certainly one more piece on the chessboard. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that it does speak to the bomb that went off in the late '80s or in the in the early '90s, where you could look like anything, you could sing about anything. The musical style and the lyrical bent of Jane's Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana, Rage Against the Machine, Tool could not be more different. And yet they were unified by the fact that it was a it was a fearless artistry. And it was a time where the executives for a moment sat back and said, we don't know what's best. We don't know what like we're just going to trust that whatever is happening in the the dingy rehearsal studios in the San Fernando Valley or in Chicago basements or wherever is going to connect and just leave them alone. And that's yes. what you get. That's what you get when you do that is you get that crop of 90s bands that really, you know, I think that if you line up the and again, I'm, I'm glad that we're doing the show because I don't think that that it gets the attention that it deserves. Like that first wave of those um, Lollapalooza Nation bands is one that made music that's uh, that feels like it's pretty timeless. I think what I love most about the 90s, it, it was the planets aligning where it was an almost an unprecedented rawness and authenticity and a vulnerability married to a, a unique artistry, like yeah. you said. Yeah. But it was all of those things yep. simultaneously. Yep. And it was the first time there was this new sound, this feeling, this message. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was magic. In my mm-hmm. opinion, the 90s are my are my favorite decade. I, I mean, yeah. it's, it wasn't just a renaissance. It was my personal renaissance. I just think it was the most magical decade. Yeah. And one thing that you know, younger musicians can maybe take away from that is that there was it was an emphasis on this kind of freedom of creativity. Like none of the none of those bands expected to be popular. Right. You know, like, like that's that's the one thing we all had in common was up to that point. Like, the, as I said, we started with like the hair metal bands like you had to look this way and sound this way in order to be popular. There was no chance you were going to get an MTV or the radio. You had to and assume position. That's true. That's correct. Right. You had to assume. And now was you could be anything. In fact, you could be yourself, you know, and yourself. that and that was. 
that had okay. the possibility of connecting with a with a global audience. So there you have exactly. it. Exactly. Allison, the you're best. the greatest. You're the greatest. You and, are. Uh, and congratulations on your growing rock family. Thank you. Thank you. It's the greatest gift. You better believe we only play great music here. And I will say it's mostly 90s. Yeah, well, well let me tell you. Wait till, wait till they begin making their own choices. Yeah, but Ro- Roman shreds. Does yeah, it Roman does. shred? Yeah, my younger one is, he still has one foot firmly in like classic rock. But the uh, Great. But yeah, so, but K-pop is also on the menu. Let me just tell you that right now. So All right. <laughs> You're in a judgment-free zone. No judgment here. I'm in a judgment-free zone. I'm in a judgment-free zone. Let the children enjoy their music. But Allison, lots of love to you and your family. And thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Of course. It. My right, pleasure, Tom. All right. Thank Talk you. to you later. Awesome. Right, okay. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. I'm Tom Morello. Thanks so much for listening to Maximum Firepower. My guest today was Allison Hagendorf, who's awesome, queen of rock. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Till next time, take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower. Oh.